welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 121. My name is Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. Well, this week I've been playing a lot of Destiny 2, given the new Lightfall expansion is out now. Today I'm going to run through my first impressions of Lightfall, the campaign, the post-campaign, and also the quality of life improvements. I'm also going to round up the latest gaming news, including a release date and showcase for Starfield. So, it is a busy show, so let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're well and you're having a good week. You know, I am good this week. Starfield finally has a release date, plus we got the dates for the Xbox showcase in June, and that is confirmed for June the 11th. Plus, we've got a deep dive with Starfield right after... So that is very, very exciting stuff. Now, the game itself is going to release on September the 6th, 2023, which is very close to my birthday, so I will be looking forward to playing through that. Well, today, I want to round up everything that we know about Starfield, given we've got those key dates now in mind. And later on in the show, I'm also going to be rounding up more gaming news, including the Resident Evil 4 demo is available right now. So if that is something you're looking forward to, then I'd recommend downloading that. Well, before we get into it, it'd be great if you could leave a review over there on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast some more eyes on it. And I do have a link in the podcast description and the show notes as well. So if you like the show and you want to leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. Plus, I'll read out a review on a future episode of the podcast. Well, that is it for my waffly intro for now. So let's get into what I've been playing this week. Well, these last few weeks, actually, has all been about Destiny 2 Lightfall, so the latest major expansion from Bungie. This one is a follow-up to the hugely successful Witch Queen expansion, and that released in February 2022. And Lightfall is the penultimate DLC of the 10-year-long Light and Darkness saga, which has spanned Destiny 1 and 2, so it's been going since 2014. A really, really long time. Well, today I'm going to dive into my first impressions of Lightfall, plus a deep dive into the story a little bit later on in the show. Well, without further delay, let's get into my first impressions of Destiny 2 Lightfall. Well, Lightfall is here after much build-up and a great season of the Seraph. And today, I want to dive into my first impressions of the latest yearly expansion from Bungie inside Destiny 2. I'm going to get into the gameplay, the story, Strand, our new location on Neo Muna, plus all the quality of life changes like mods, commendations, and loadouts as well. Well, first of all, I want to dive into the gameplay. So if you are a seasoned Destiny 2 veteran, well, all of this is going to be familiar indeed. So Strand... Our new Darkness subclass offers up the most dramatic changes to gameplay through the grapple mechanic, which, to be honest, has been implemented pretty well. Yeah, we did get a taste of Strand via the campaign, but it doesn't really open up until after the story when we get access to our aspects and our fragments. Basically, these are ways to modify our Strand setup to get the most out of the subclass. Well, so far with Lightfall, I've been maining a Warlock, and this has been working really, really well for me. I was thinking about going into the expansion as a Hunter, but for some reason, I always default back to a Warlock. I'm glad I did, given the emergence of Strand and the combination with Necrotic Grips. You know, that build has come out since the campaign wrapped up. It's some of the most fun I've had playing as a Warlock in Destiny 2. You know, I was late to Stasis in Beyond Light, having played through that campaign as a Titan. Getting Stasis was an absolute slog, 
It was really slow. It was really frustrating. It took months to open up and get done. I did some of that with my Titan when it first released, but I didn't really open up everything until sometime in the Witch Queen expansion, and that was about one year later. But thankfully, Bungie has taken on the feedback and made opening up Strand much easier and much quicker too. Now, some enemies have been reworked with the Shadow Cabal, however, it is not a huge change. Now, it's funny, because we've been battling against pretty much the same enemies since 2014. And although the Shadow Cabal have minor updates, it's mainly just cosmetic. We didn't really get a major new variant introduced like we did with the Vex in Beyond Light. Well, Tormentors are a great addition to the game, so they are like minions of the darkness, mini rolk like bosses. They grab you and give you a void pulse attack and drain you of your light and your health. And the sound design with the Tormentors is very good. You know, the audio getting all distorted when you get attacked. It reminded me of some of the great sound design work done in Beyond Light. Well, that is it for the gameplay. Next up, let's have a look at the story and the campaign. So, warning, there are spoilers ahead in this bit. So, next up, the story. First of all, I do think there are some positives. So, the campaign itself was pretty well paced. The cinematics were good. The final boss fight against Callus was also a good demonstration of Strand. But, to be honest, that is about it for the positives. Otherwise, the campaign was underwhelming at best and confused and a confusing mess, if you want to be brutally honest. This campaign felt like filler, and it felt like there'd been some pivot within Bungie at some point, and those cracks weren't really covered by the campaign. The best moments of the campaign with Callus and The Witness, however, we spent far too much time with Strand. Now, Strand, as a Darkness subclass, is pretty good fun, but it's a gameplay mechanic or a feature. I don't really want to know too much about the lore of Strand. Now, one cutscene would have been enough, but we got loads and loads of missions. There's been a whole bunch of negative feedback about the Cloud Striders. So Rohan, he was a great character, but he died fairly early on. We didn't have, and we didn't get to spend enough time with him to be fully invested in his character to really care as to whether he died or not. Then you got Nimbus, the younger Cloud Strider, and their tone felt all wrong. And the fist bump attempt with Keitel just wasn't very good at all. So you know, there's a great deal of story to tell with the Cloud Striders, but it's all post-campaign rather than in the campaign itself, which is a shame. Now, once you get to the post-campaign, you learn much more about the Cloud Strides, their history, their celebrated heroes and champions, and that is really, really good storytelling. And shout out to that Neomuna newsreader as well. They are very, very cool indeed. The Lightfall campaign did not live up to the Witch Queen or even Beyond Light, and it sits somewhere around the Shadowkeep campaign sort of levels for me. Now, the mystery of the Veil wasn't fun. It calls back to storytelling from Destiny 1 days, and we know that we went through a major pivot not too long before the release of the game, and you can just feel the same kind of vibes here. Nowhere more obvious than the split cutscene with the witness interacting with the traveller. So while that cutscene was in itself very good, the whole veil element of the story just wasn't done very well. It felt confusing and it lacked clarity. And Lightfall should be setting up a great conclusion, but it posed more questions than answers. And when we're supposed to be entering the final phase of the Light vs. Darkness saga... Well, next up, we've got the environments, and Neptune is our new destination for Lightfall, and while it looks beautiful, it feels very shiny and new, but it also feels empty. This is explained away by the story with the inhabitants of Neomuna uploading themselves to the Cloud Ark to exist in a digital space. And the Cloud Ark is essentially some kind of Neptune-based internet where all the inhabitants can upload themselves to live forever. 
Neomona looks great, and it is a stark contrast to other environments that we've had in Destiny 2. Much of it reminded me of some of the best locations on Titan, and it's the polar opposite to Sabathun's throne world. It's a shiny city with a beach made of diamond sand. Although the destructible environments are a great addition to the game, and introduced during the campaign, when you have to smash down a door, much to my surprise. And while it looked great, it's empty and doesn't feel like a city under attack. Kalos' ship, meanwhile, is an impressive structure. I do love the aesthetics of those darkness ships, but overall, it doesn't really compete with Sabathun's Throne World for me, or even the EDZ. Next up, we've got the loot, so this is definitely another positive. So as always, the loot is excellent. I've got my hands on the post-campaign exotics, including the heavy stasis glaive, the strand sidearm, and also the void machine gun. So the stasis glaive, I think that's winter bite. That's probably my favourite of the bunch so far. I also like the fact we've got strand legendary weapons in the game at the launch of the new damage type, whereas I think we had to wait quite a long time for stasis legendary weapons. I think it was the final season of the expansion before we got those legendaries. So overall, the loot is definitely a big thumbs up from me. Next up, we've got the quality of life improvements. So Bungie have introduced loadouts and commendations into the game, and they definitely are a good feature. So loadouts... They've been possible via DIM for many years, that's Destiny Item Manager, and arguably they have been done better. So it is a good and useful feature to be able to save a loadout, especially in the game, and quickly and easily swap depending on your activity. My only issue with it at the moment is you can't rename a loadout, which does seem a little bit odd. I'd like to be able to describe what that loadout is for. The commendations are decent, but it feels like you can only give positive feedback, which feels a little bit pointless. After a few times, you know, I do like handing out the accommodations and, of course, I like getting them as well. But there are only a few limited options right now. And hopefully Bungie can flesh out this feature in the future. Finally, then, we've got the mod system. So this one has had a massive overhaul and at the minute feels like a little bit of a miss. So it looks like Bungie has taken this opportunity to reduce the amount of power output that we have via abilities and taken away some of the major features. But looking positively at the mod system, I do think it's going to take some time to get used to, and the new builds will emerge over time. I've already put together a Great Strand Warlock Necrotic Crypt build. You can find that over there on my YouTube channel. And other light subclass builds are coming very, very soon. So first impressions of the mod system haven't been great, but I do think it's something we're going to have to bed in over time. Well, that is it for my first impressions of Lightfall. Let me know down in the comments, or you can tag me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. Would really, really love to hear what you think. While I do think much of the campaign was a massive disappointment, actually, the rest of the game really comes together quite well after the main campaign and all the post-campaign stuff, the lore with the Cloud Striders, that is really, really good. I'm getting much more used to the mod system now and the quality of life improvements are pretty good. Also, Season of Defiance, that is the first season that has launched alongside Lightfall. That is pretty good. And the story there is quite engaging, bringing Crow and Amanda Holiday back into the fold, and also Devrim K as well. So there's some characters there that we haven't seen for a few seasons. So hopefully we can just put that campaign behind us and get into the seasonal story content for 2023 as we build up to the final shape. Well, talking about the story, next up I want to do a deep dive into the Lightfall campaign and have a look at what went wrong with Lightfall's story. So we don't know exactly what is going on inside of Bungie, but something has definitely gone on here because that Lightfall campaign has fallen really, really flat and the feedback is very, very negative. If you just go over there and look over on Steam, 
I think it's actually still sitting at a mostly negative review, which is quite incredible for a Destiny 2 campaign. And I don't think Bungie had been through a moment like this since Beyond Light first came out, then had to drag things back when so many players left after Stasis was introduced in the game and really just created a lot of problems in PvP. But there has definitely been some negative feedback regarding the Lightfall campaign. So next up, let's have a look at what went wrong with Lightfall's story. Well, the Destiny 2 Lightfall campaign is a major step down from campaigns that have come before it, which is especially jarring since the Witch Queen. That was only 12 months ago, and that was really, really fantastic stuff. So how did this happen, and what does this mean for the upcoming year of content as we lead into the final shape and the end of the Light vs. Darkness saga? Well, today I'm going to have a look at what went wrong and where that leaves us in Destiny 2. Well, there was much build-up to Lightfall and a lot of momentum from the Witch Queen, and Lightfall's story and campaign appears to slam the brakes when it comes to that momentum leading us towards the end of the current saga. This has been six years in the making, and Bungie appears to have taken a few steps back in regards to the story, which, to be honest, is a massive shame, given we're only a few weeks since the fantastic story that we just had with Anna Bray and Rasputin from that more than a, from that more than a hero questline in Season of the Seraph. You know, early in the Lightfall campaign, we're called to Neo Muna, the neon city of Neptune, to investigate the Vale. We're told desperately that we need to find the Veil because otherwise the Witness and Callus they're going to use it to connect the Traveller, which apparently is bad, although it's never really explained as to why. So we meet the Cloud Striders, the inhabitants of Neptune, although we only meet a couple of them because everyone else has been digitised and uploaded to the Cloud Ark, the information superhighway where residents of Neomuna can live forever. You know, so much is crammed into a short space of time it doesn't really allow for connections to develop between the story and the audience. Neomuna is cold and empty, although it's being sold to us as a city under siege. And while certain areas do feel like they're crawling with Vex and Cabal, otherwise the city is cold and lifeless, while somehow looking brand new at the same time. So let's take a moment and have a look at some of the positives of the Lightfall campaign. So the gameplay is good. Strand feels great and there's a good variety of encounters. Those initial cutscenes in the campaign are also very, very good. The Witness feels dangerous, and you've got an Avengers Endgame feel to seeing Zavala, Mara, Ikora, and the gang on the ship looking out into space. You've got the Traveller attacking the Pyramid Fleet. That is very welcome indeed. This huge static ball that has been in our skies for six years, barely moving, even though it's called the Traveller. You know, seeing it go out there to meet the Witness and the Pyramid Fleet was great, and to go on the offensive for once, you know, we've known about its tendencies to flee danger and save itself, given that's the way it acted with the Elixni, leading to Eremis hating the Traveller. Yeah, one final positive was the showdown between Callus and Keitel, a father versus daughter battle that has been years in the making. And the siege before the final boss was good fun, although it would have been poetic for Keitel to have taken the final blow against her father rather than us. Unfortunately, that is where the positive end for me when it comes to the Lightfall campaign. Everything is just so condensed. I haven't really had the time to build up an emotional connection to the Cloud Striders. Therefore, Rohan's death is very flat. The mission itself was fun from a gameplay point of view, but in terms of caring about the outcome, it just didn't hit the right notes. 
Now, tonally, Nimbus doesn't feel like a well-written character. They seem to get over Rohan's death far too quickly. Osiris was also a major letdown in the campaign, so Osiris's character was used very effectively in the build-up to the Witch Queen, but he's been back for a season, so put right again by drinking a tea made out of the current raid boss remains, and thrown back into the campaign to become the whiniest version of Osiris we've ever seen. Osiris just moans all the way through the campaign, telling us to hurry up, or ordering us about, or being super vague about the veil. Osiris has been a good character in the past, and he had to work really hard to recover from the Curse of Osiris campaign. It felt like he redeemed himself during Season of Dawn, with the return of Saint-14, but this was a massive step down for Osiris as a character, and has definitely negatively impacted how I feel about him going forward. If I see that he's involved, I'm probably going to be less interested. Well, then we got the veil. So we're told fairly early on about the veil. We're not told about what it is or what it does or why it's important. You know, I understand over the months of Lightfall, we're going to get more information related to the veil. But to introduce something like this so late on in the saga and then not resolve it in the campaign just kind of feels bad. Then we've got references to the radial mast and the veil is connected to the black heart from the Black Garden. You know, tying it all back to Destiny 1. Now, the story feels like Destiny 1 storytelling. It's confused, and it feels like it's been quickly written. And then post-campaign, we've got Zavala and Ikora saying the Traveller's gone, and I thought, well, it was still there, but the Witness had just cut a portal into it and then stepped into that portal. You know, Lightfall's campaign felt like a disparate set of ideas that were barely held together with a very thin campaign. Too much emphasis on Strand, not enough story development with the Witness and Callus. And by far, the best moments of the campaign were with The Witness and Callus. Callus just clearly being a pawn, being used by The Witness, which itself is disappointing. Callus was supposed to be a super powerful Cabal Emperor, and yet his special ability as a campaign boss, well, that is just a gun. Well, the story in Lightfall feels like filler, and it also feels like a pivot has been made within Bungie itself. So this all has a familiar whiff of Destiny 1. So Jason Schreier has done a good job of documenting what happened with Destiny 1. I want to turn to a section of an article that he wrote for Kotaku at the time, back in 2015, because it is applicable now. However, he also dedicated a chapter to the making of Destiny in Blood, Sweat and Pixels, his fantastic book about the trials and tribulations of making games today. So this is an excerpt from the messy true story behind the making of Destiny. As I mentioned before, that is by Jason Schreier. So Jason says... In the summer of 2013, months before they were supposed to ship their next video game, the game developers at Bungie went into panic mode. The storage studio, best known for creating the multi-million selling Halo series, has spent the previous three years working on something they hoped would be revolutionary. Destiny, as they called it, would be a cross between a traditional shooter like Halo and a massively multiplayer game like World of Warcraft. It was going to become a cultural touchstone, now, we want people to put Destiny Universe on the same shelf they put Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter or Star Wars, Bungie COO Pete Parsons said in an interview a couple of years ago. And reports suggested the publisher Activision are committed to a 10-year deal worth $500 million to make that happen. Well, back in 2013, something went terribly wrong. Destiny's writing team, led by the well-respected Bungie veteran Joe Staten, had been working on the game for several years. They put together what they called a supercut, a two-hour video comprising the game's cinematics and major story beats. In July, they showed it to the studio's leadership, and that is when things went off the rails, 
according to six people who worked on Destiny. So senior staff at Bungie were unhappy with how the supercut had turned out. They decided it was too campy and linear, and they quickly decided to scrap Staten's version of the story and start from scratch. In the coming weeks, the development team would devise a totally new plot, overhauling Destiny and painstakingly stitching together the version they'd ultimately ship a year later in September 2014. And the seam showed. Reviewers singled out the story in particular, knocking the vague plot, the thin characters and opaque dialogue. Well, by 2015, a lot had improved. The most recent expansion, The Taken King, had levity and charm of which Destiny players hadn't seen before. But the question remained, how did such an ambitious game wind up with such a bare-bones plot? Why did Bungie seemingly change so much of the story before it shipped? And how did it ship in a state that required so much tweaking after it launched? And what really happened behind the scenes of Destiny? When the summer of 2013, just over a year before Destiny came out, the story got a full reboot, according to six people who were there. Bungie ditched everything Joe Staten and his team had written, reworking Destiny's entire structure as they scrapped plot threads, overhauled characters and rewrote most of the dialogue. The decision was made against Staten's wishes, sources say, and Destiny Project lead Jason Jones and the rest of senior leadership were unhappy with the writing team's supercut, and their reaction was to scrap it all. Well, that is it for now from Jason Schreier and that article there from Kotaku, but it is really, really good. Definitely recommend going to read the whole thing, and once again, and once again, that is the messy true story behind the making of Destiny. Well, that is just an example there of Bungie scrapping the whole story a year before Destiny came out, and it really, really feels like something similar has gone on with Lightfall. I don't know what has exactly happened inside Bungie, but the output for Lightfall certainly doesn't live up to the very high standards set by the Witch Queen. This is often the case with Destiny 2's great expansions. They aren't followed on with good ones. Forsaken was followed by Shadowkeep. Rise of Iron followed the Taken King, although many look back fondly on the Rise of Iron. This leaves me with thinking what is coming next for Destiny 2, and can Bungie redeem themselves in the year building up to the final shape? We're approaching the end of the Light vs. Darkness saga and the next steps of Destiny 2, which you could presume means we're about to leave our solar system via the portal created in the Traveller by the Witness, so this could present us with a soft reset, or maybe even a hard reset, although I'm not really sure that's a good idea, considering what happened in 2017. Destiny 2 itself is ageing, you know, it's a game that came out in 2017, and although Bungie has done a good job of upgrading the engine in the background, the game is definitely still showing its age. Plus, Bungie have got a few other projects in the pipeline. They've got a mobile game with NetEase, as well as a potential competitive hero shooter in the works, and maybe even an extraction shooter as well, based on Marathon. Destiny 2 is a huge cash cow for Bungie, bringing in millions of dollars, allowing them to fund other projects, but it's showing its age and creaking at the seams. PvP players aren't happy with the service they're getting and the game's veered more to a PvE game in the last few years. Now the PvE crowd are getting unsettled by the campaign in Lightfall, and you have to wonder if Destiny 2 will survive the end of the Light vs. Darkness saga. But I'd like to finish on a hopeful note, so much of the post-campaign content in Lightfall has been excellent, and while the campaign itself was a letdown, that might be because of a deadline or a time restriction. Now, some of the best story moments of the Witch Queen were drawn out over weeks and months, rather than condensed in the campaign. Now, the Witch Queen had the benefit of years of build-up with Savathun, whereas Lightfall really only had a year of build-up with a witness appearing in the Witch Queen for the first time. 
We've got Season of Defiance going on right now. We've got some powerful story threads in the game to explore, including Crow and Amanda, the Bray sisters, Osiris and Ikora, and also the yet-to-be-filled Hunter Vanguard position, plus a whole load more. I'm really hopeful that Bungie can flesh out the story in Lightfall and hit the landing when it comes to the final shape. Well, let me know down in the comments what you think about the Lightfall campaign. We'd really, really love to hear from you and what do you think is going to happen over the course of the year as we build up to the final shape. So let me know down in the comments or you can catch me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. Well, that is it for now for my thoughts on Destiny 2's Lightfall campaign. Next up, let's have a look at the all-platform charts. Well, number 10 this week, it's Grand Theft Auto 5. That is up two places from last week's number 12. At number 9, it's Minecraft. That is up one place from last week's number 10. At number 8, we have a new entry. It's Wolong, Fallen Dynasty. And at number 7, it's Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. That is up two places from last week's number 9. At number 6, it's Kirby's Return to Dreamland Deluxe. That is down three places from last week's number 3. At number 5, it's Holding Steady. It's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. At number four, another one holding steady is God of War Ragnarok. And at number three, it's FIFA 23. That is down one place from last week, number two. At number two, it's Metroid Prime Remastered. That one is a new entry and still holding that number one slot is Hogwarts Legacy. And as I understand it, that is doing really, really well. So congrats to the team behind Hogwarts Legacy. Well, that is it for now for the all-platform charts. But next up, let's check out the latest in the video game news. Well, first up today, Starfield release date has been confirmed, and this one comes from Marcus Stewart out of Game Informer. So Starfield, Bethesda's mammoth-sized space RPG, is launching on September the 6th, the publisher announced in a video earlier this week. So additionally, a presentation showcasing more of the game called Starfield Direct will air on June the 11th. So in a new video hosted by game director Todd Howard, he states the Direct in June, which happens to be the weekend before E3 starts, will provide a deep dive into the game, and he reiterates that Starfield is a unique experience that also has many of the hallmarks that fans expect to come from a Bethesda title. And we also saw Starfield during the Xbox Game Showcase last summer, where Bethesda revealed its extensive scope, including thousands of planets, spaceship construction, environmental scanning, and also other features as well. Well, Starfield was originally slated to launch on the 11th of November 2022 before getting delayed, it was later reconfirmed to launch within the first half of 2023, although September sits on the second half of the calendar, so we're happy to see the game get a concrete date once again. Starfield is going to be available on the Xbox Series S and X, also on PC, and it's going to be available on launch day on Xbox Game Pass. Okay, next up we've got more news from Microsoft. So Microsoft confirms June the 11th Summer Showcase. This one's from Matt Wales out of Eurogamer. So Microsoft has announced... It's going to be holding this year's Xbox Game Showcase on the 11th of June. That, of course, isn't particularly surprising news. Microsoft had long favoured the pre-E3 Sunday slot for its big announcement showcase, and this one is clinging on to, even after reports it won't be participating in this year's E3. As the specifics of its showcase, Microsoft isn't saying much right now, only that it's going to be run ahead of a special Starfield Focus Direct that is going to come later on in the day. Understandably, Microsoft has been focused on its more immediate slate of releases in recent times, namely the next Forza Motorsport instalment. We've got Redfall and Starfield, all with launches for those titles now on the horizon. Hopefully it's going to be turning its attention to some of the long-announced first-party games 
that we haven't really heard much from in a while. So these include the initiative spin on Perfect Dark, Obsidian's Avowed, Ninja Theory's Hellblade 2, and Playground Games' highly anticipated Fable reboot. So will any of these surface during this year's pre-E3 showcase? Well, only time will tell. Well, next up in the news, Square Enix president Yasuke Matsuda is stepping down. And this one is from Marcus Stewart out of Game Informer. So diving right into it, Square Enix's president is stepping down and the official announcement states that he's going to be replaced by the relatively new Takahashi Kiryu, a company director who joined Square in 2020 as part of organizational restructuring. So the proposed change will be voted for approval at the 43rd annual shareholders meeting in June and Square Enix's reason for the change is as follows. So under the rapid change of business environments around the entertainment industry, the proposed change is intended to reshape the management team with the goal of adopting ever-evolving technological innovations and maximizing on the creativity of the company's group in order to deliver greater entertainment to its customers around the world. Matsuda became president in 2013, succeeding Yoichi Wada as part of massive restructuring, and his time at the top could have been viewed as a bit of a roller coaster. He pushed for innovation in Square's flagship franchise, Final Fantasy, and voiced commitment to remaking and re-releasing popular titles from Square's back catalogue, such as Final Fantasy VII. The MMO Final Fantasy XIV also has become a global phenomenon under his watch, although the company as a whole has largely struggled to land a massive success outside the franchise. So, in recent years, high-profile Square Enix published titles such as Marvel's Avengers and Babylon's Fall had disappointing releases, with the former ceasing development this year and the latter shutting down this week. Perhaps most infamously, Masuda was also at the front of the Square tumultuous relationship with its North American third-party publishers, namely Crystal Dynamics and Ideos Montreal, whose titles such as Tomb Raider Reboot Trilogy, Deuce X and Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy were often deemed commercial disappointments, and that came to a head last May when Square Enix sold off these studios and their IPs to the Embracer Group. Well, in recent times, Matsuda was also a vocal advocate for NFTs and blockchain gaming, in January, he published a letter detailing upcoming company initiatives, including making games that incorporate blockchain technology. Okay, next up, let's shift gears from one Japanese developer to another, and this, and we're going to turn our attentions to Capcom. So Resident Evil 4's demo is available. So Resident Evil 4 fans really want to play the upcoming remake later this month, but they can get a jump on it early, thanks to the release of a playable demo. And by early, I mean right now. So if you have a next-generation console like an Xbox Series S or X or a PlayStation 5, you can download that demo right now. Well, the demo unfolds with the game's first chapter, with Leon making his initial trip into Ganado Village. The demo has no time limit and is available on all platforms the game is coming to, which will be a PlayStation console, the Xbox Series S and X, and also PC via Steam. And the full version of Resident Evil 4's demo launches on March the 24th. Well, that is it for now for all of the gaming news. So hopping back to the first article there, we do have a release date for Starfield. Well, next up, let's check out everything we know about the new flagship title from Bethesda. And this is everything that we know about Starfield. Now, before we dive into this one, I want to say thank you to Christopher Livingston from PC Gamer for this excellent piece. So you should definitely go and check out PC Gamer and all the other great stuff written by Christopher Livingston. Well, it's Starfield year, and we've got our suits on, and our spaceships running, ready to take off for that old space Skyrim and the stars. 
And now we even know when, so Starfield is arriving in September of 2023, surrounded by all the excitement we'd expect for a new Bethesda RPG. Well, it's no surprise there's truly astronomic hype for Bethesda's first new RPG franchise in a quarter century. And as we creep closer to release, Bethesda's been sending Todd Howard on his rounds, slowly pulling back the curtain on Starfield's open-world space adventure. Okay, first of all, when is Starfield going to release? So Starfield releases on September the 6th, 2023. Originally, it was supposed to launch on November the 11th, 2022. Bethesda announced the delay in May 2022, saying the teams at Arcane, Austin, Redfall and Bethesda Game Studios Starfield have incredible ambitions for their game. We want to ensure that you receive the best, most polished versions of them. It was expected to be in the first half of 2023, then just moved a little bit past that with an official September date announcement. Okay, next up, when is the Starfield Direct live stream? So there's going to be a Starfield showcase on June the 11th, 2023. Early in 2023, Xbox warned players that Starfield would not be making an appearance at its developer direct live stream in January because it wanted to dedicate the proper amount of time for a deep dive on Starfield. And as it turned out, we found the official game launch date at the same time at the showcase date. And given it's just three months ahead of the Starfield release date, so we should be able to expect a pretty thorough look at all the new things in Starfield in June. Okay, next up, how much is Starfield going to cost? So with Sony, Activision... And now Microsoft raising the standard game price to $70. Rentering an extremely expensive era of gaming, Starfield will also cost $70, maintaining this price as a new normal and not a temporary spike. Luckily, Microsoft has made a habit of putting the latest AAA games on Xbox Game Pass from launch, and Starfield has been confirmed as a day one addition to Game Pass. Well, the 2022 Xbox and Bethesda Showcase gave us our long-awaited first look at real Starfield gameplay, and Todd Howard brought plenty to show, so we got our introduction to an interstellar Bethesda open world on a desolate moon, which gives way to the gunplay against space bandits, so clips of NPC conversations gave us a sense of the player's overarching goal and the factions that they can join. So we got a glimpse of the character creation and Starfield skill system, so you can choose skills with each level up and you gain additional ranks as they provide more benefits. A crafting system will let players modify and customise their space guns, and players will be able to establish outposts as they explore. And then Todd Howard bought the big guns to the showcase, unveiling Starfield ship customization. That's going to allow you to make your own dream ship to fly between Starfield's 1,000 explorable planets. Well, Starfield's first trailer was a cinematic teaser showing an astronaut climbing into a spaceship whilst a robot walks around on the surface, and we get a nice new look at the ship while a voiceover says, what you found is the key to unlocking everything and we've come from the beginning of humanity's final journey. And the pilot sits at a console, flips a bunch of switches, and the trailer ends with rockets firing, and the ship about to take off. We aren't just going to be choosing from a selection of ships to pilot in Starfield, as shown in Bethesda's gameplay reveal. Players can completely customise the look, the layout, and the performance of their spacecraft, with tons of ship customization options. You're going to be able to design your own ideal starship, down to the placement and the appearance of individual modules for the different manufacturers each with their own attributes. So a similar crafting system will let players modify and customise their arsenal of space firearms and a glimpse of in-game crafting mechanics showed us different tiers of researchable barrels, grips, optics and muzzle mods that could be applied to a submachine gun. We got a pretty good look at creating and levelling a character during that June 2022 Xbox and Bethesda Showcase gameplay reveal. 
We saw some templates, body shapes and size, skin tones and hairstyles for your character's physical appearance, although not the details of their faces. You better choose a background. Options like Combat Medic, Bouncer, Professional or Homesteader, which all comes with three starting skills. So character skills are things you'll recognise as Bethesda RPG staples. So Medicine, Lasers, Persuasion, Bargaining, all things like that. As for levelling those skills, Todd Howard said the Starfield system combines the best from our previous games, meaning you'll unlock new skills as you level up and then upgrade those skills by using them or by completing challenges. If that is not enough role-playing, Starfield also has Traits, another system familiar from past games. These are optional choices for your character that comes with pros and cons. So Spaced, for example, gives you increased health and endurance while in space, but it's decreased on the surface. According to Howard, these traits are problems that you can solve if you get sick of them. Each trait will apparently have an additional quest to nullify it, removing both of its positives and the negative effects. So some of the particularly interesting traits include Dream Home, so you own a luxurious customizable house on a peaceful planet. Unfortunately, it comes with a 50,000 credit mortgage with Galbank, and it has to be paid weekly. You've got Hero Worship, so you earn the attention of an annoying, adoring fan who's going to show up randomly and jabber at you incessantly. On the plus side, they will give you gifts. Then you've got kid stuff, so your parents are alive and well, and you can visit them at their home, but 10% of all the money you earn is deducted automatically and sent to them. So you've got different religions as well, including one that includes the worship of a space serpent. They're all present in Starfield, so these are chosen during the character creation. They have a couple of traits linked to them, so Raised Universal is a trait that gives you a discount at the church store that means you can't use the enlightened store and the enlightened may be another religion or perhaps another group of space atheists. We're not really sure yet. Either way, choosing one religion seems to put you in the opposition of another. So as is tradition in Bethesda RPG, Starfield will have companion characters to join you on your travels. So the first introduction to a Starfield companion was with Vasco, a robot companion shown off in a video from earlier in 2022. And the expeditionary robot will presumably be Starfield's default companion, similar to Dogme in Fallout 4. Refurbished to handle the rigours of space travel, Vasco sounds like he's more of a workhorse with storage capacity and a variety of gear to aid you in exploration, although he still has weapons. Well, Todd Howard spoke more about Starfield's companions in a lengthy video interview from the end of November 2022, discussing the value of time and the emotional investment spent with companions in the game both Bethesda's and also others. So Howard confirmed companion romance in Starfield and noted the studio's interest in giving those relationships some additional complexity. Bethesda romance tends to be a binary state, gather enough affection points to cross an arbitrary threshold and you are in a loving relationship. So lose enough of them and your romance might as well have never happened. You know, hopefully moving away from that, Howard said that four of Starfield's companions will offer a little bit more depth. I won't say super complex, but more complex relationships than we've had, Howard said. Not just some state of they like you or they don't like you. And they can be in love with you and dislike something you did. And they can be pissed off at you temporarily. Well, next up, will Starfield be multiplayer? So Starfield is not going to be multiplayer. Since its first reveal, Starfield has been planned as a single-player action RPG. Bethesda currently has no plans to develop competitive PvP or a co-op feature for Space Explorers this time round, so other than Fallout 76 and the Elder Scrolls Online, it's quite rare for Bethesda games to offer multiplayer functionality. Right now, it is looking like a no, but that doesn't mean multiplayer won't ever exist in Starfield. 
So it is still a possibility that Todd Howard and the Bethesda crew will announce some sort of online collaboration or competitive element in the coming months. Even if they don't, maybe modders will put together another Skyrim Together miracle a decade after Starfield's launch. Well, next up, Starfield will have over 1,000 planets. So in the gameplay reveal for Starfield, Todd Howard said that the fully explorable galaxy in Starfield will contain over 1,000 planets, made possible with a mix of handcrafted content and procedural generation. Each planet can be landed on and explored on foot. Now, will a lot of them just be wastelands with minerals to harvest? Probably, but so are most real planets. Okay, what do we know about the major Starfield locations? So... One of the recent trailers breaks down the region of space known as the Settled Systems, a 50 light-year radius around our own solar system where humanity has spread out. It's divided up between the two main factions, the United Colonies and the Freestar Collective, who are working at an uneasy peace after a recent war. It also touches on some of the same threats a player might face, so ecliptic mercenaries, pirates of the Crimson Fleet, violent spacers, or even fanatical religious zealots. In the short videos called Location Insights, the design director for the game introduced some of the settlements you're going to be visiting in Starfield, so each video is less than a minute long, with the design director giving a quick summary over some of the concept art. So really, it is not a lot to go on. That said, there's some really interesting nuggets of lore, like a fishing settlement on an aquatic world that becomes a pleasure city, following the discovery of a psychotropic space fish. Okay, finally then, let's have a look at Starfield's factions. So space is a dangerous place, and it's no surprise that in the settled systems they're going to have a number of groups angling to meet their own ends. We don't really know too much about the main story just yet, but there's definitely going to be a healthy number of factions at play in the world, like in other major Bethesda RPGs. So Constellation, a group of human explorers, seems like the game's main faction. Todd Howard has described the group like NASA meets Indiana Jones, beats the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, a group of people that are still searching for answers. But we don't know much just yet, but we heard the names of brief descriptions of a few Starfield factions that may meet or hear about along the way. That alone was enough for some of us to decide which space factions we are going to join. Well, that is it for now for everything that we know about Starfield. So really, really looking forward to that full game race. It's just around the corner for my birthday as well. So looking forward to that. Well, that is it for now for Starfield, but next up, let's have a look at what's coming out in the next few weeks. Okay, next few weeks starts on March the 14th. So first of all, The Legend of Heroes, Trails to Azure, PlayStation 4, Switch and PC. And then we've got The Wreck, that is PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. Then on the 15th of March, we've got Walken, Lords of Mayhem. That's PS5, Xbox Series S and X. Then on the 16th of March, we've got Anno 1800, PS5, Xbox Series S and X. And then also on the 16th, we've got the Dark Pictures Switchback VR. That is coming to PSVR 2. On the 17th, we've got Bayonetta Origins, Cereza and the Lost Demon. That is coming to Nintendo Switch. Also, there's a good demo available on the eShop right now if you want to try that before you buy it. Then on the 17th, we've got WWE 2K23, PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One and PC. Then on the 21st, we've got Remnant from the Ashes coming to Nintendo Switch. Also on the 21st, to Cheer, PS5, PS4 and PC. That one is also coming to PS Plus, so keep an eye out for that. On the 22nd, we've got Have a Nice Death, that is Switch and PC. 
And then on the 23rd, we got Atelier Riser 3, Alchemist of the End and the Secret Key. That's on PS5, PS4, and also on the Switch. Also on the 23rd, Storyteller, Switch and PC. Then on the 24th, EA Sports, PGA Tour, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PC. And finally, Resident Evil 4. That is a remake. That is coming out on PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, and also the PC as well. Well, that is going to be it for everything on this week's episode. If you want to get involved in the show, get in contact through patreon.com forward slash this week in video games or check out the latest on the website. You can also ping me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. I would really, really love to hear from you. So if you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, you can find other podcasts in the feed. Well, thanks again, and I'll see you really, really soon. 